We begin our scripture reading in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, we're going to read the entire psalm and then turn to John chapter 19 where a portion of the psalm is fulfilled. John 22, that's page 860 in your pew Bible. And then John 19 where we'll read from the verses 23 to 24 is on page 1684, 1684. So Psalm 22, which is a psalm for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning. It is a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. They, I, can, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions and save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor Him. Revere Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden His face from Him, but has listened to His cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and the families and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. And to John 19 and the verses 23 and 24. 
And these will serve as our text. Jesus, at this point, has been before Pilate, has been sentenced to be crucified, has carried the cross to the place of the skull. Above him has been placed the notice, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And then at verse 23, we pick up the story. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, and this is a quote from Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. May the Lord now add his blessing to this word. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Psalm 22, which we have just read, is, as you might have noticed while we read it, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is quoted repeatedly and in many different circumstances, and it is a psalm that truly speaks to what it is that our Lord experienced on this day. Indeed, that opening verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, brings us immediately, does it not, to the cross, to Golgotha, and to the death of Jesus Christ. To be sure, it's a psalm that also includes wonderful expressions of trust and of thanksgiving, but it is a psalm that brings us to this day, to Good Friday, and to the events of this day. And it brings it to us in the midst of David's own suffering. For it is, first of all, a psalm about David's own experience of grief. David graphically describes what he's enduring as king within the land, painting a vivid picture of what it means to be harassed and hurt by those around him, by his enemies. He speaks of them as dogs. He talks about them as piercing his hands and his feet. He explains and expresses how it is that they do him harm. Maybe if we were to try and bring this into a more modern context, imagine for yourself in this day of a Ukrainian citizen suddenly overwhelmed by some Russian force. And you can imagine the horrific events that are experienced by such a citizen in that moment in any war where there are where there is such cruelty, such, such wickedness expressed. You can imagine what those in power, those with strength, believing that they can get away with such things would do to such a helpless and hopeless person. And now imagine that you're that citizen, that you're the one being beaten. You're the one whose clothing is being stripped off of them. You're the one who is being so cruelly and so powerfully mistreated. Think of the pain. Think of the offense. Think of the emotional sense of helplessness you would feel in that moment. That's what David's describing in Psalm 22. A helplessness that is a reality in this fallen world. A helplessness that at some point or other we will all probably experience when we watch loved ones flounder and feel helpless when we watch a relationship disappear, disintegrate before our eyes and we feel helpless, when we face an illness that the doctors give no real chance of overcoming 
we feel helpless. We feel helpless by the burden of the power of sin in our lives as we try to fight against but cannot overcome these temptations and trials. We feel helpless in the face of our guilt and shame. We feel helpless in so many ways. We know what it is that David speaks of in Psalm 22. We know what it's like to have ourselves exposed to the world, to, if you will, to be naked before all and to be ashamed. And it is precisely for that reason that we ought to take great comfort and remarkable encouragement by what it is that happened to Jesus on Good Friday. We ought to be encouraged about this fulfillment that John draws our attention to in our text. The fulfillment of Jesus' clothing being taken from Him and divided amongst His captors by lot a strange detail to the story of Christ's crucifixion, isn't it? I mean, when you think of what John says, it takes him only a few words, four or five, to say that Jesus was crucified. He writes, when the soldiers crucified Jesus. But then he spends a lot more words talking about this event of his clothing and these soldiers dividing it up, a reference he sees to to Psalm 22, verse 18. Why is it that, that John wants us to pay attention to this connection and to this aspect of our Lord's suffering? It's worth noting that all the gospel accounts mention the division of the, uh, of the clothing by lot, that the soldiers divided the clothing among them. But only John points us back to Psalm 22, verse 18. Why do you think that is? Why is this dividing of the clothing so important to the Apostle John? Clothing actually in the Bible plays a rather significant role. One commentator made the point that there are important times in Israelite history when robes and the tearing of or taking away of a robe played a rather significant moment. Think of the prophet Ahijah ripping his robe into 12 pieces in, in 1 Kings chapter 11. Or think about when Saul ripped Samuel's robe in 1 Samuel 15. Indeed, this commentator said those robes were ripped up describing the division of the kingdom. In John 19, the robe is described or the garment is described as being seamless without being ripped, without being parts. And they don't strip it. They don't rip it. They don't divide it up that way. They cast lots to see who might get it. And so the commentator says in the past, the kingdom, the church was divided, but in the death of Jesus Christ, there is unity. And maybe there's something to that. But it seems to me that there's a more fundamental truth that is worth reflecting on when we think about the role of clothing and the role of being naked, being exposed before God and men as Jesus was upon the cross. Because clothing has served for a very long time the purpose of hiding our shame, hiding our grief. Indeed, that was the very first purpose for clothing in history. We think of clothing as making us look nice. We think of it as certainly keeping us warm and protecting us in times when we need such things. But the very first purpose for clothing was to cover our shame. Think of the story in Genesis chapter 3 when man was created, being made without sin. 
And so living in unbroken, intimate fellowship with God and with his wife, both, as we're told in Genesis 2, were naked and not ashamed. There was nothing to be ashamed of. There was no abuse. There was no judgment. There was no wickedness, no brokenness. There was no cruelty. There was no destruction. There was only life as God had made it in its beauty and in its wonder. And they reveled in it. There was no shame. Only after the fall. Only after man chose to rebel against God. After, only after man rejected the claim of God upon his life did he suddenly feel the need to hide himself. Hide himself from God and from his wife covering himself in fig leaves and hiding amongst the bushes so that God would call out, where are you? And I was afraid, says ma'am, because I heard you walking in the evening. Man was suddenly ashamed because that's what sin does. That's what sin has done from the beginning and that's what sin does to this day. We all know that. That's something we all recognize, isn't it? We cover ourselves because of our shame, both literally and figuratively. That is, we wear clothes, at least in part, because we don't want people to see us as we really are. We don't want to be embarrassed. But we also wear masks, don't we? Not literal masks, emotional masks, intellectual masks, personality masks. We wear these things so that people will not know the struggles we are facing and enduring. When somebody says to us, how are you doing? And we smile and say, fine, that's a mask that hides the truth that so often is dwelling within our hearts. And where does all of that grief and shame come from? It comes from the entrance of sin into this world. Sin that is such a destabilizing force. Sin that causes all manner of sorrow for everyone. Think of how selfishness, our selfishness, ruins relationships. Think about how greed ruins societies. Think about how laziness ruins businesses and homes. On and on we can go pointing out that the problems of life can be traced back to our rebelliousness against God and His Word at the root of so many of our troubles. In some expression is the tentacle of sin, is the power of our rejection of God, of our refusal to look up and our desire to look inward, to say, I'm the most important person. What I want is right. What I think is true. And suddenly we discover that we have brought grief into our life and that we need to hide the truth. We need to lie. We need to cover up. We need to deny and diminish because of sin. And that's just one aspect of sin. We haven't even touched on droughts, storms, and sicknesses. The truth is there is a curse that lies upon all of life, ruining what is good, and, the, and we desperately try to cover it up. We are no different than Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with their fig leaves. We paste over our problems with all manner of temporary and foolish solutions. We use drugs, we use alcohol, we use financial success or confidence in a government. We use our medical community and our society in so many different ways to try and make ourselves feel better, to try and cover up our brokenness. 
Think of the husband that works long hours, telling himself he's making, trying to make the business successful, but the truth is he's trying to find his identity. Think of a woman distracting the world from her struggles by dressing provocatively. Think of the smiling Instagram post that betrays the reality being disguised. And does any of it work? Not one iota. We still suffer. We still face the grumbling reality of our world. We still break under the weight of shame. But you see, then comes our Lord, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. He is clothed. And He makes His way to the cross. And once having been crucified, they divide up his clothing, making the totality with which he is, or marking the totality with which he is exposed before the eyes of men, and more significantly, before the eyes of God. Jesus Christ bears the shame. See that now as he hangs upon the cross, uncovered before the world. He bears it for you. Your shame and your guilt. He hides none of it. He preserves for Himself no dignity. He does not diminish the awfulness of what He is about to endure. He doesn't cover Himself up in any way. He doesn't dismiss, diminish, or deny. He doesn't try and make it better than it is. He accepts the brutal truth so that He might bear for you the full weight of your guilt and shame. Would you do that? Would you accept this level of misery and exposure and shame? We we refuse to, even, even when we know that we will be covered in the garments of forgiveness. Because the truth is, even in our relationship with God, we have a hard time accepting this level of exposure. We all struggle with admitting the truth. Even though Jesus will wrap us in His mighty and gracious arms, we still want to say, but I don't need help. I'm okay by myself. I can do it on my own. But Jesus hangs exposed before the judgment of God because He knows you can't and won't. And so He accepts the shame and the guilt and the suffering that it brings so that you never will. Can you begin to see what a glorious Savior you have? And what a rich salvation is yours. He's disrobed that we might be robed in His righteousness. He is exposed for all to mock and shame so that we might forever be covered in the blood of the Lamb and never need fear the judgment seat of God. Don't you see, this is the wonder of our Savior. He gives Himself to you, surrendering His own 
pride, surrendering his own glory, surrendering his own dignity so that you might dwell in his grace and goodness. What a Savior we worship. What a Lord we've been given. What a grace we must embrace. It remains for us so hard to say, I need this Savior. But know that as you cling to your pride and your good works and your dismissal and denial of your problems, know that as you lie about what you're doing, you are only bringing misery into your own life. Let go of your shame, for it is purchased in Jesus Christ. It is paid for on the cross of Calvary. And cling to His clothing that you may be righteous and that you may know that peace that passes understanding. That you may know the blessing that comes from such a Savior and a blessing He provides indeed. Notice how in the second place there was a distribution of all His earthly possessions. That's also a part of this story, isn't it? Not only is Jesus stripped naked and hung for all to see upon the cross, but He is also made poor. He's impoverished. This Jesus, who had little to begin with anyway, He had no place, as we know, to lay His head. And now these soldiers, probably four, these four soldiers, those who were to execute Jesus, and as a result, according to Roman law, were privileged, had the right to receive the property of the deceased, they take His clothing and they divide it among themselves. There's something of value in the midst of all of this, isn't there? There is this undivided garment, this undergarment as our text says. And they don't want to strip it. They don't want to rip it. And so they say, we'll cast lots for it. And that night, one of those soldiers went home with Jesus' clothes. And that means you understand that that Jesus died in abject poverty. That Jesus literally had nothing Nothing he could claim as his own. Nothing that he could say, this belongs to me. This I can pass on to a future generation. This I can leave as a mark of my existence. Jesus was truly without any wealth. Which is, of course, another indignity. Another expression of his suffering. Another grief that he had to bear. I mean, remember, this is the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Creator, the one to whom all things owe their existence and to whom all blessing and honor belongs. What a grief then to be so disregarded, so dismissed and so miserably minimized, such that the only blessing He seems to offer this world is in the distribution of His clothing. How overlooked He is, how misunderstood He is, and how cruelly treated He is. But there is, of course, more here, isn't there? Again, go back to the beginning of time and go to that very lush, rich, and bountiful garden in which God placed man. See how the Lord provided liberally with blessings His 
beloved creature, that blessing of material goods that echoes throughout redemptive history. I mean, think of where God sent His people when He took them out of Egypt. He sent them to a land flowing with milk and honey. He is a God who blesses abundantly. The Lord has always blessed His people. And those blessings pictured for them His faithfulness and grace to them. Don't misunderstand that. The purpose of the material blessings that God bestowed upon His church throughout redemptive history is not the stuff in itself. God is not interested in our bank accounts or in our closets or our garages, but He is interested in our resting in Him, our loving Him, our experiencing His goodness and His grace. That's why in the Old Testament, when Israel sinned, they experienced want. They were sent into the wilderness for 40 years. They were sent out of the Garden of Eden to a world filled with thistles and thorns, of sweat and sorrow, of ashes and death. And they were given droughts and famines, and they were made to come to their knees in grief. That's something that we all know too, isn't it? Poverty has profound consequences on our enjoyment and experience of life. Extreme wealth may be unnecessary, but sufficient wealth is indeed a blessing. And yet so often, isn't it, that we look to those material things as our good rather than to the giver of them, our God. What we count as worthwhile are so often fleeting and merely temporary. Even a well-funded retirement plan is not only subject to the whims of the market, but, also to the sub- to, or, but is also subject to our lifespan. I mean, if you die too early, what was the point of saving all that money that you can't spend anyway? Don't you see how quickly we chase after the stuff of this life, but to discover Only that like children after Christmas Day, the toys we thought were so important, we've come to discover aren't. Do we recognize this? Do we understand this? Do we say that stuff doesn't matter, people do? Or that the most valuable things in life aren't things? Or that you can't take it with you? But do we understand truly that our greatest blessing has nothing to do with the stuff we have, that you could lose it all and still be the richest person on the earth. Because the blessing of God's grace and goodness is more precious and powerful than anything else. This is what Jesus reveals to us as He hangs upon the tree in abject poverty. For the Lord comes to bear the weight of what separates us from God, what causes us to suffer want. Think of what our Lord relinquished to be on the cross, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus surrendered it all for the glory of His God, for the fulfillment of His Father's will, for the salvation of His people. Jesus knew that His stuff didn't matter, but that salvation does. 
And He died so that we might be rich. Not materially, though He also bestows that upon us, but far more importantly, that we might be rich in love, rich in forgiveness, rich in fellowship, rich in eternal life, rich in ways that matter, that can never be taken from us, that moth and rust cannot destroy, an inheritance that can never spoil, perish, or fade. All the wealth of this world will disappear. All the wealthy of this world will one day die. But those who trust in the Lord, They will receive eternal blessing so that we can surrender all in this life and never lose a thing, not a thing of value. Do you see that? Is that how you live your life? Is that how the cross of Calvary challenges you today? To surrender your grip on the things of this life that we hold to far too tightly and to rejoice in the knowledge that we have been given so much more. We're living in a dying culture. We're living in a a society headed for trouble. We know that. We see that. And we know that that will mean that in the future the church is going to suffer. That we are going to have to surrender. Are we willing to do that? Will we willingly accept the loss of our financial, material success? in the confidence that we have the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that Jesus who died poor did so so that we might be rich in Him. See, that's in the end what we celebrate today on this Good Friday. We celebrate His provision that covers us and our shame so that we may know that we have nothing to fear before the judgment seat of God. And that He gives us a blessing, a rich blessing, far more valuable than anything this world can offer. He gives to us life and life in the full. And if we remember that, can we not then endure those moments of helplessness and of grief we will all experience? Those moments of Psalm 22 when like David we say, Lord, it is too much. I am being overwhelmed. My enemies are too great for me. I am so helpless and hopeless. For into that moment steps our crucified, our naked, our impoverished Savior. And He says, for my sake, you are not helpless or hopeless, but you are blessed of all men. And let go of the things of this life For I have claimed you with a power that cannot be broken. A love that can never be lost. When we see Christ in this way, then we will understand that we're not nearly as helpless as we might think. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Father, what a grace and goodness is ours in Jesus Christ. He who was made naked that we might be clothed. He who was made poor, that we might be rich. Lord, help us to value what He values. Help us to orient towards His blessings. 
Help us to let go of the things that so easily captivate our hearts, our own pride, our own wealth, our own standing within the community, our own material success. Help us to say, this is my Savior and my Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.